You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Cyber electioneering in Hungary and Russia, some international implications. The Mirai botnet is exploiting the Oh My God vulnerability. A shipping company deals with data extortion. Government websites have been serving up some oddly adult-themed ads. Malek Ben Salem from Accenture on the quantum threat in the automotive industry. Our guest is Patrick O'Reilly of CyberSaint to discuss concerns about the defense industrial base. And no, there's no such thing as the Elon Musk Mutual Aid Society. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, September 20th, 2021. Elections in both Hungary and Russia appear to be accompanied by disturbances in cyberspace, either hacking or suppression by policy or a mix of both. Barron's reports that Hungary has delayed its first opposition party primary until September 28th. According to Yahoo News, the opposition says the delay is due to a cyber attack for which it blames Prime Minister Orban's government with the possible involvement of Chinese operators. The journal says that Orban's Fidesz party has dismissed the incident due to the opposition alliance's incompetence. Russia's current elections for the Duma, the national parliament, are also in progress. The effective leader of opposition to President Putin, Alexei Navalny, is in prison on a variety of charges ranging from fraud to extremism. External observers generally regard the charges as trumped up. But the Russian government isn't interested in seeing the opposition maintaining a presence online either, setting a precedent during elections for Russia's Duma that Wired calls troubling, Apple and Google have acceded to the Kremlin's request that they remove opposition voting apps prepared by Navalny's smart voting project from their stores. The app in question was a voting guide, not a mechanism for casting votes. According to Wired, quote, created by associates of imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny, it offered recommendations across each of Russia's 225 voting districts for candidates with the best shot of defeating the dominant United Russia party in each race. End quote. Radio Free Europe reports that Telegram has done likewise, 
blocking chatbots smart voting had used for endorsing candidates. Telegram said that it was following Russian election silence laws, represented as similar to laws in other countries that restrict various forms of campaigning during the elections themselves. Here in Maryland, for example, it's illegal to buttonhole people standing in line outside polling places. If you want to talk to them or hand them a leaflet, you've got to do it outside the parking lot or at some comparable distance. But according to Radio Free Europe, Telegram's founder significantly said that developer outfits like his own had little choice but to follow the lead of Apple and Google. So the decision taken in Silicon Valley seems to have flowed to other outlets. The Atlantic Council summarizes the issue as follows, quote, The Russian government has reacted to this voter guide as if facing a serious national security threat, a reaction that has stirred international controversy. The furious and ultimately successful efforts to suppress this voter guide not only demonstrate the Russian government's determination to assert broad control over both the outcome of Russian elections and the information Russian citizens can access online, but also how the underlying dynamics of Russia's censorship agenda can become an international problem, forcing companies based outside its borders into complicity with domestic repression. End quote. Voting was held over the weekend from the 17th to the 29th of September. Preliminary results indicate that United Russia has retained its very comfortable majority in the Duma. Linux servers running on Microsoft's Azure cloud remain under distributed denial-of-service or crypto-jacking attacks by botnets exploiting the Oh My God vulnerability in the Open Management Infrastructure application, OMI, installed by default in most Azure Linux virtual machines, is a Linux equivalent to Windows Management Infrastructure. The record describes the issue, which is CVE 2021-38647, as a remote code execution vulnerability. Researchers at Wiz, who've described the exploitation, also have a review of available remediations. At least one botnet exploiting OMI is a familiar one, bleeping computer reports that Mirai is working actively against vulnerable instances. The large French container shipping firm CMA CGMSA today disclosed, according to MarketWatch, that it had sustained a data breach whose evident aim is extortion. The attackers claim to have obtained almost 500,000 individual records of customers. CMA CGM says that what it characterized as Limited customer information includes names, positions, emails, and phone numbers. The Lodestar reports that customers are awaiting formal notification from the box ship company and that this is expected to come this evening. It's the second information security incident CMA-CGM has sustained over the past year, and should personal information in fact be involved, as it appears to be, the company will be obligated under GDPR to render a prompt report to French authorities. Let's say you were visiting the Minnesota National Guard's website. Maybe you're interested in training for a biathlon over at Camp Ripley. Anywho, you arrive there and hey-ho, you're seeing ads for male enhancement solutions. That's odd, you might think. You were interested in one weird trick that might help you with your telemarketing, but it looks as though they're setting you up for telemarketing. It's not just the Minnesota Guard that's been affected. Numerous federal agencies, military organizations, and members of Congress have been affected. And it's not intentional. The senator isn't really recommending that you go visit the vendor of, say, saucy videos. 
Vice notes that this has been going on over the past year at a number of U.S. government sites in both the .gov and .mil domains. Some of those sites have been serving up the sorts of spammy ads for products that one would be likelier to find on commercial sites that use relatively indiscriminate ad servers. Security researcher Zach Edwards, whom Vice credits with having identified the problem, traces the redirects to a vulnerability in the widely used content management system Laserfish Forms. Laserfish says it's corrected the problem. Edwards thinks it persists in some corners of the product. And finally, there's a new Elon Musk-themed scam in progress. Email spam is promoting the Elon Musk Mutual Aid Fund, or sometimes the Elon Musk Club, offering an opportunity to get yourself some free Bitcoin. Bleeping Computer says that a lot of the messages, which it describes as low effort, use strange, non-descriptive subjects and messages, but include a link with a suggestive name like Get Free Bitcoin. Should you be incautious enough to click in a fit of abstraction or buccaneering what-the-heck mood, you'll be whisked to a page that has a picture of Mr. Musk and a greeting that reads, Hello, dear friend. My name is Elon Musk. You'd think that if you were in fact a dear friend, you wouldn't need to be told his name, but maybe you figure, hey, billionaires got a lot of irons in the fire, they can't keep track of all their buddies, and besides, you're pretty sure you've heard of the guy, so you click to the next step. This takes you through a series of screens in which you successively register to receive Bitcoin, seem maybe to get some, and then are asked to donate a small bit back. Only your donation is real, of course, and you're out whatever you donated. Needless to say, this has nothing to do with Elon Musk. Think no one could fall for this? Rest assured, they have. The hoods are simply trading on his fame. Seems a shame. That greeting seemed so nice. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use. With zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. 
Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Patrick O'Reilly is co-founder and chief product officer at cyber and IT risk management firm CyberSaint. He and his colleagues recently released a report outlining their take on the state of the defense industrial base and its ability to handle cybersecurity risk. I think the first big takeaway that we have from our research is that risk assessment and risk management are really lagging. They're not doing so well uh, in this sector. And, you know, to be fair in other sectors, but in this sector in particular, when you look at them, the actual charts, the high-level charts of how companies are doing, uh, risk risk management and, and risk assessment are 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 lagging behind. Risk assessment's doing slightly better because there's a lot of vulnerability management in that. And they're, you know, these companies are have usually have practices around that. But the actual flow of information from the IT, you know, and cyber staff up to the governance staff and then sort of making decisions around how do we cost effectively improve our cyber posture, that's not working so well. So that's that's very concerning. So that was the first big takeaway. Can you give us some insights? I mean, for folks who aren't in that world, what are some of the specific challenges that the defense industrial base faces when it comes to cybersecurity? Well, uh, you know, they it's it's a very interesting space because you've got these giant companies that run these really elaborate programs for cybersecurity. So, you know, the prime the primes, and then you've got the supply chain, which is hundreds of thousands of companies that often, you know, have in IT, it's the old uh, example of, uh, you know, a couple of people, um, it's a mom and pop shop and a dog, uh, you know, and these, these, these companies are making very advanced things, but they might be making one particular thing, like a particular kind of wire or a part for a rotor, and they don't have elaborate IT practices. So when the government says to them, you've got to sell into, if you're going to sell into the supply chain, you have to harden your systems along these 110 requirements, they face an immediate challenge. So it's not really a surprise to see that they struggle with this. And part hmm. of the executive orders have stressed that additional funding is going to be required. If we're going to hit companies with more requirements, we're going to have to also give them additional help. And and you see this in also the water treatment uh, plants as well. They don't have big IT shops. So some, you know, when these attacks happen and the press is like, what's going on? We have such advanced technology. Uh, that's true. <laughs> but if you look at the actual practice inside these companies around cyber and IT, it's very small and it's, and it's really constrained and um, they need help. What are your recommendations then? I mean, for, for folks who are looking to uh, to do better at this, what, what kinds of things can they put in place? Initially, what companies that are constrained have to do is look at the uh, most cost-effective ways to make systems more resilient. That includes looking at sort of the open exploits that are out there, you know, the remote desktop protocol issues, you know, segmenting networks, um, better risk management processes. The thing about risk management is it's not just managing risk. It's also really the decision chain around how do we do this, you know, within our budget. That's really what risk management is. It's This is a risk. This is the probability of it happening. This is how much it could cost us. So the first things to do, even for small companies, are to understand what the crown jewels are and protect those and protect those in the most cost-effective way. Sometimes the approach to the standard is 
everything is equal under the standard. Uh, that's really not the case. There are opportunities to do cost-effective things that can really, really harden your systems in the current landscape against the current APT and do it in a cost-effective way. Are you optimistic that these goals are achievable? I am. I am personally. I don't know that um, many in my position or many of my colleagues are. Part of what I do is try to build a solution to make this easier for people. And mm. I, I kind of have to believe that, you know, and I, and I want to. And I think there are a lot of optimistic signals out there at the moment. You know, I think that the CMMC is being adopted. I think that they're going to put a little bit more, a little bit more enforcement behind it, but they're going to be fair, you know, and, and I don't think that raising the bar is unreasonable. I think if you want to sell into the supply chain, you should have to uh, do certain things for your security and protect information. I think we're also seeing a little bit more um, engagement, you know, in the executive orders that are coming out from very powerful departments, agencies. NIST is writing up software supply chain requirements. The agencies are reviewing how they do business. There's going to be money available for it. And as the federal government goes, so does the defense industrial base to some extent, because they're so closely allied. That's Patrick O'Reilly from CyberSaint. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Malek Ben-Salem. She is the Technology Research Director at Accenture. Malek, it's always great to have you back. I want to touch today on some issues that I know you've been tracking. This has to do with the automotive industry and the potential quantum threat that they're preparing for. What can you share with us today? Yeah, in a previous segment, we talked about the quantum threat and how uh, it affects all industry sectors. But it's actually more imminent for the automotive industry. And, and the reason is the average on-the-road lifespan of a vehicle is about 11 and a half years. Hmm. And it takes, you know, about, you know, five years to design a new vehicle and to bring it to manufacturing. So that takes, you know, that planning to 16 and a half years. So think about cars that will be on the road 16 and a half years from now when a new quantum computer is probably available and can can and the quantum threat would be real then those types of cars that we're designing today have to be designed with you know quantum safe crypto uh, hmm. so that they are not uh, vulnerable to this threat and so what kind of systems within the car are we talking about here that where are automobiles using encryption generally 
Yeah, I think what's most of concern for auto manufacturers today uh, is not necessarily the systems within the car, although they are also of concern, but it's more about how to deal with the software updates in the future. So our cars are, are becoming smart, right? They are contain huge pieces of code, right? Millions of right. lines of code. And, uh, you know, I can bet that those programs contain some bugs and they have to be fixed at some point. Um, not to mention that they would probably need to be upgraded with new features, et cetera. So dealing with updating that software is something that uh, the auto manufacturers, you know, have to think about. Obviously, you know, you can take a car to your mechanic to do the update instead of uh, having an over-the-air software update, but that tends to be very costly. Uh, I think mm-hmm. estimates uh, are expected, uh, or uh, the software updates over the air are expected to save the automotive industry about $35 billion. Wow. So yeah, it's it's not uh, insignificant, um, and therefore uh, you know they want to design the, these cars to be updated uh, through software updates over the air. But how do you ensure that that update itself is is not is not malicious, right? How can you authenticate that it's coming? How can the car authenticate that it's coming from from the manufacturer and not from somebody else? That is why we need to ensure that, uh, you know, these algorithms that are protocols being used to distribute those software updates are quantum safe. I could see us sort of getting into a chicken and the egg kind of thing here where, you know, it's, it's if you have to update the car's firmware so that it's quantum ready, how do you make sure that that update isn't vulnerable, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's why you need to have the um, infrastructure, if you will, in place today, right? Mm-hmm. You, you need to ensure, uh, the auto manufacturers need to ensure that they're using, if you will, a hybrid model for, uh, for encryption and that they're able to upgrade to different uh, crypto algorithms as they become the standard in the future. So in a way, are, are they trying to future-proof things? I mean, is this the kind of thing where, you know, if I were to buy a car in the next decade, even though it might not be in active use, they will have planned for its eventuality? Ideally, yes. Uh, yeah. I, I, yes, absolutely. I don't think they will be, you know, 100% future-proof. Uh, I think they're, you know, we'll see things evolve, particularly when it comes to, um you know, the hardware requirements and the chips being used on these cars, because as mm. as more crypto, or, or let me say the quantum safe crypto will be, um, is likely to um, be more, require more computations. And so the chips that are performing those computations and also dealing with all the sensors, the new sensors that will be on the car, the, the ability to, you know, sense things on the road and communicate potentially with other cars, et cetera, that will put a, a huge computational burden, right, on, on these chips. And so they, those have to be designed, right? We cannot keep using the chips we're using today on, on the cars. And <laughs> with all the chip shortages that, that we see today, I mean, we're going to be dealing with new hardware requirements. So I think um, that there will be delay, if you will, or... It, 
we'll need some time basically to get everything yeah. future proof. Yeah. Yeah. Challenges ahead. You know, I, I, listeners to this show probably heard me say it before that uh, my favorite iPhone accessory is my car. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's the way I look at it these days. All right. Well, always a pleasure to uh, talk with you. Thank you for sharing your expertise. Malek Ben Salem, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Ha! Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. And check out the Recorded Future podcast, which I also host. The subject there is threat intelligence, and every week we talk to interesting people about timely cybersecurity topics. That's at recordedfuture.com slash podcast. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Haru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.